Hello and welcome to the Pediatric Network. My name is Mike Marinus. I am your host here and chiropractor on the Pediatric Network. And today I am thrilled that we get to speak with Yvanka Terenti. Now I'm going to get to saying hello and how are you? But first of all, you have so much that you've done uh, that I just want to kind of read through your bio very, very quickly. So, Yvanka studied podiatric medicine first uh, before transitioning into medical orthotics and prosthetics. She then obtained her honors in medical orthotics and prosthetics in 2017. Uh, she has a special interest in pediatrics, which is why you are with us today. Thank you very much. Uh, um, <clears throat> and uh, she, uh, she uh, looks into cranial remolding, cranial remolding specialist, and she has a keen interest in pediatric patients that present with neurodevelopmental delays, gait abnormalities, genetic rarities, and conditions such as cerebral palsy, and of course, things like spina bifida. And having completed four years of service in the government sector, she ventured into private practice in 2017 with a clear goal of providing evidence-based practices to the private community uh, and working within the pediatric field. She is now currently the only practitioner in all of Africa that is certified and accredited to provide the American FDA-approved cranial remolding orthotics and post-surgical helmets. She has successfully treated over 100 babies with remolding orthotics, and she believes in incorporating a multidisciplinary approach when treating patients. Yvanka, thank you for spending your time with us here. Hello, and thank you for having me. Oh, that was a that was a mouthful, but uh, yeah. we, we only get the best <laughs> on here. So <laughs> wonderful. So so thank you first of all, very very much for 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 spending some time with us uh, today. Um, and I think the first thing that I'd like to cover for a lot of the practitioners on the line here, just so that we have our ducks in a row, we are talking about plagiocephaly today. Yes. We're going to be talking plagio, and we're going to be talking cranial remolding. Talk us through plagiocephaly. What are we speaking about when we say that word, plagiocephaly? So, simply, plagiocephaly is a skull deformity that forms through external forces. So, this can either happen in utero, during the birth process, or postnatally. And what we're typically looking at is an asymmetric skull deformity. So, um, I have a few visual aids to help us. So, what Fantastic. we're looking at is um, a flattening on one side of the skull. So, a lot of Practitioners will say to me, oh, I see these children and they have a flat head. And, and I don't like the word flattening because it's a rotational deformity. And what actually happens is it causes um, the skull to rotate and causes bossing on one side of the forehead, ear rotation. We're looking at mandibular asymmetry. We're looking at orbital depth changes. Um, we're looking at rotation on the jaw, rotation on, on the maxilla. And oftentimes people say to me, well, that's normal. Not everybody has a symmetrical face. And I, I agree with you. And what's considered normal asymmetry is not to four millimeters. And when we start getting anything above four millimeters, so above half a centimeter, we start seeing this rotational deformity affecting the face. So plagio carefully, simply put, is a rotational deformity of the skull that then causes rotation on the face. Okay, so I really like uh, just point one, take home point number one. When you talk about like a flat spot, because that becomes kind of the the, the, the wording that, that gets thrown yes. around, that then negates anything that would be happening anteriorly in the head. It's almost like exactly. you're now thinking it's just a posterior problem and then you don't look at the spot. It's not at all, yes, and a, and a lot of practitioners say that, and then it leads to that thought pattern that, oh, it's going to round out. There's no such thing as rounding out a bone. There's no such thing as a, as a flat bone in the skull. It's a rotational deformity that causes rotation on the adjoining structures. And I'll show you a case study that um, the company I work through did. Um, about nine years ago, we conducted a trial on twins, identical twins. One twin um, had 17 millimeters of rotation of skull deformity, so plagio carefully measured at 17 millimeters. Her sister had a 16 mil um, plagio carefully, and in the trial they decided to treat one sibling and not the other sibling. And the whole point of that is to show how this rotational deformity affects the face. I'm not sure if you guys can see that, but when we look mm. at the twin on, uh, on the left and how her face is, is pretty symmetrical. She's got 3.5 mils of asymmetry. And her sister on the right here, you can see the indentation on the skull. She's got a rotated ear. She's got a thickened mandible. You can see the droop on the skull and the droop on the nose. And, and simply put, 
the structures have to go somewhere. So a lot of times we see cranial vault inclusion. So we've got these sloping little peaked skulls. We've got a forehead asymmetry. It's not a flat bone. It's a rotation. It's almost quite disingenuous to talk about it as, as, as a flat spot because saying to a parent like, oh, she has a spot on the side of her head doesn't explain that when she's 17, um, you know, this is, there's going to be a, a big kinesthetic change potentially right. to this child, yeah. which is going to have a massive effect on, on and the rest it's of not, You're right, and it's not just cosmetic. What we're seeing in these children, especially the ones with anterior ear rotation, is we're seeing a shortened and narrowed ear canal. These children are more prone to otitis media and ear infections. They're not draining correctly in those ears. With that thickened mandible, we're seeing mandibular asymmetry. So we have uh, malocclusion of the jaw. These children are going to need dentistry work. Um, they grind their teeth. They have knock-on headaches. It's, it's a whole health effect on top of... Okay, now you have a slightly uh, uncosmetic head. And, and I don't like it when practitioners say, well, who cares if you have a flat head? Well, I care. I care mm. and the psychology cares. You know, we, we need to be intervening. It's not a, acceptable to say, oh, your head looks a little funny. In the same way that when you have skewed teeth, you address skewed teeth with braces. It's, it's the same way that we're addressing skull deformities and facial asymmetry. Yeah, and as you say now, uh, cosmesis is one part of that, but there, there's pathology that can that can that can come along with this. Um, so, so not just um, to say that it's going to look because I know back like the seventies and stuff when I read the papers back then, a lot of it yeah. said, well, it's cosmetically a little bit different. And then there came this almost this movement of going, but hang on a second, it's putting pressure on brain parenchyma. Right. Uh, there are all sorts of developmental things that are coming along with this. So and so that is part and parcel of having yeah. this, what is much more than just a flat boat. Yes, yeah, so that's another, um, you know, another skull deformity that I, I want to bring enlightenment to. And a lot of practitioners and most practitioners that refer to me go, he has a plagia baby. And uh, we need to be very specific. When we talk about plagia, we're talking about asym asymmetry or asymmetrical changes. There's another skull deformity called brachycephaly. And brachycephaly is the bilateral flattening of the occipital. And in our severe plagio and in our moderate to severe brachy babies, we're seeing compression of the occiput and the compression of the occiput is putting pressure on the brain and forcing the brain to move into different quadrants. And that's why you're starting to see all of these studies. And unfortunately, by the time the studies are released, we're 17, 20 years in the future of all of these trials that have been done and all of these kids that have been monitored. Um, and we're looking at how their brain development is altered because Years and years of research, there was a, a trial released in 2012 where they measured all of these deformational babies and they measured the corpus callosum and how the compression of the corpus callosum, forcing it into different quadrants of the brain or different quadrants of the skull, created the anomaly that the brain then doesn't function properly. So that makes sense. If you don't have the correct structure, you don't have the correct straight, you're not going to correct, you get the correct firing, you're not going to get the correct signal. So when we look at brachy babies, and in South Africa, I'm seeing more brachy babies or asymmetric brachycephaly babies, which is a combination of a flat head and a rotated head. Um, and when we see these brachy babies, more often than not, these are the ones that they're going Oh, it's just a flat head, and it's not. There are parameters, there are measurables, there are years and years of research that say the head is supposed to be this long to this wide. Um, the face is supposed to have this much symmetry to this much asymmetry. And when we start falling outside of those guidelines is when we see these developmental delays. Okay. So now so now we've, we've talked about plagio, which has that rotational component, and then we've talked about brachy. Uh, yes. And there's also scapho, which is another, which is another yes. type. Let's, can we just talk a little through that? Because you might have one or two practitioners that see that kind of head. Yeah. So these are the babies you're going to be seeing if you're working in uh, NICUs, in ICUs. These are predominantly your prem babies. Um, they're trained in, in NICUs to reposition on the side. So babies are turned on their side, turned on their side, and these babies develop these long, elongated skulls, super narrow. Um, and it almost, uh, we're going to talk about craniosynostosis in a moment, but mm. it almost looks like a sagittal craniosynostosis. It's a super long, narrow skull. A true scaphocephaly um, is quite rare, but they are very hard to treat. Okay, okay. I do remember one, and this is just from me being a complete nerd and, and reading through a book, I can't, and I can't even remember where I read it, but the, the reason it's called scaffo is that refers to the keel of a boat. Yes, yeah, like the, the round. Keel of a boat going, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that, yeah. Little yeah, round, so. narrow edge. 
Mm. So I'll make it look like I read books. Uh, <laughs> okay, so uh, that leads us quite nicely on because all the stuff we're talking about, or we have been talking about up to now, is kind of, uh, we've been alluding to it to be positional. So it's, uh, it's created by having an external force placed onto the skull, either in utero or it's happened uh, uh, perinatally or it's happened postnatally. But yes. there is this other thing of craniosynostosis, and this is where we need to be careful. I think also as practitioners going, oh, everything is just a positional thing. We do get problems like cranios. So if you could just speak us through that, please. So um, the skull has six sutures. So we're going to have a look at this little guy. This is the baby skull. All these little sutures are fibrous networks. In a craniosynostosis baby, what we've got is either premature fusion of one or multiple sutures. The most common one um, that we spoke about now is when the, the sagittal suture is closed. And what we find is these children, because the brain is, is uh, compressed or held in this position, their brain grows out the back and grows out the front. And they get these super long, elongated skulls. Um, the problem with a craniosynostosis baby is that we have brain compression. A lot of times, funny enough, even craniosynostosis is deemed as cosmetic in some cases. But of course, I mean, if we can accept the premise that a skull um, holding a brain in position and not allowing that brain to grow optimally is going to cause damage, then we can understand this concept. So I know a lot of practitioners are scared to dabble in cranial work because they think, oh, well, what if I get a cranial baby and I don't know how to identify it and then I've missed it and it's my responsibility. And I just want to, to ease everybody's minds and put everybody at peace. If you can mentally or teach yourself how to identify the two main positional deformities. So plagiocephaly and brachycephaly, scapho is quite rare unless you work in an, in an ICU environment. I promise you, when you see a cranio baby, it's very obvious. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and maybe mm -hmm. I'm just saying that because I work with heads all day, but every single cranio baby that's walked into my, or been, been walked into my been office, <laughs> been rolled into my office, <laughs> um, it's, it's very apparent because it's quite, an extreme visual to see. Saying that, there is no harm in treating that baby. I mean, other than myself, who's putting helmets on skulls, um, you know, and obviously we have a fusion, we can't move sutures um, mm. from how the, the helmets work. There is no harm in treating a cranial baby. And a lot of parents are scared to refer out because what if they were, I mean, not parents, a lot of practitioners are scared to refer out because they always think, well, what if I'm wrong? It's okay. It's okay if you're wrong. The surgeon yeah. will have a, the craniofacial surgeon will have a look and say yes or no, and and at least you've ticked all your boxes. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, so craniosynostosis is simply premature fusion or or fusion that happens too quickly. Yeah, I think that's that's been one of the greatest things about about working with you, is is that I can go, I look at it and I go, I'm just not sure. It's yeah. on the edge clinically for me. Um, uh, there's a little bell at the back of my head going, I don't know, but I know if I send off to you, we can get a scan, we can get uh, numbers that we can correlate actually what's going on, and then we can go, look, I'm now well within my right to, to carry on treating, I can get rid of your tension, I can make sure that, uh, you know, like something like a torticollis underneath is not adding to that kind of problem, yes. um, but... I have now the backstop of going, I have done my almost like a jurisprudence because I've sent through, you You know what's happening. And then there'll be someone you send through and you go, thank goodness you sent this child through because we can't mess around with this, you know. No, you're running out so, of time, yes. It, oh, please, that is another thing because time is of the essence with this, with working with this. Let's, just, uh, let's put a little bit of uh, time aside just to speak about the fact that, you know, we, we need to get hold of them in time. Yes, yeah. So one of the points I want to make very, very clear, and these are uh, sentences I hear often, is don't worry, when your child sits, it will round out. Or don't worry, they'll grow out of it. And the reason they won't grow out of it is there are no epiphyseal plates in the skull. And just a quick recap, the job of an epiphyseal plate, for example, in your arm or in your neck, is to direct growth in a specific direction. So obviously in a tibia, we're going, um, we're going lengthways. There are no epiphyseal plates in the skull. So there are no cell, there are no cells being built in the cell as the skull grows to say, hey guys, I need you to go up and out. The only way that the skull grows is through internal pressure of the of the brain growing. So I've run this exercise. I've been I've been running this FDA program for four and a half years. And the first year, being a young orthotist, I, I was like, 
okay, I guess all the pediatricians are right. I should probably listen and run the experiment. And um, I did that. So I, I have case study upon case study. And if anybody's interested in reading that or seeing the images and seeing that data where I, so the way I do it is I 4D light scan the children that brings the skull up as a 3D image onto the computer. And the software program I have is incredible. It really allows me to either cross-section the skull from a lateral view or to quadrant it from an aerial view. I can choose as many slices as I want. I can measure centimeters cubed. And I ran the experiment of the child is four months old. They have severe brachycephaly, which means they're extremely flat. We send them away for two months. We do some repositioning. Um, the child is now six months old and sitting. And we scan them again. We hand measure them again. And they're again at the same uh, cephalic index ratio, which is linked to width proportion. I've run the exercise again and again. And that is because we need to change the directional force that the skull is growing in. We need to grab those sutures and allow them to grow in the correct direction through using gentle force and gentle pressure. So it is absolutely impossible for a moderate to severe child to outgrow a deformity. When we're looking at a mild child, so let's say the child needs two millimeters of change, the probability that you're going to get two millimeters of growth in and around the direction you need is a lot higher than a child that has 16 millimeters of correction or that needs 10% of correction, for example. And the reason we talk about timely intervention is as those sutures and fontanelles start to close, one, you're making it a lot harder for us to do our job. <laughs> the child is going to need to be in an orthosis for a lot longer. Yeah. And the optimal time to treat is between four and eight months, especially your asymmetric children. Um, the metopic suture, which sits on the front of the face here, um, closes between six and eight months. If these children have orbital depth issues or uh, mandibular asymmetry or, or uh, maxilla asymmetry, it's very, very hard for me to, to move those parts of the skull. I end up having to use temporal and parietal bones to get the joint position. You're making a longer treatment for your parents and your patients, and uh, <laughs> you're wasting time and meaning that we're not going to get as accurate a result. So we can only helmet from four to 18 months. And the children that are helmet after a year old end up staying in helmets for four to five months for the same changes that we needed six months ago. Okay, I get you. So so that is that I think is a really important point for, for any practitioner out there who's working in this kind of space to know that yeah. Uh, helmeting is not something where you go, you know what, let's wait until they're two or let's three. Years. <laughs> this yeah. is a timely thing for number one, to be able to get the best outcome, because like you just said, those facial changes happen and then they happen once and then they're done. And then you, that's how you are stuck. And then to be yeah. able to change that takes a lot. And then now the parent has to go on a longer psychological journey as well to prepare exactly. themselves for using. It becomes expensive. It's all sorts of stuff. So I think that if, if there's a takeaway point is to go the days of going we'll wait it out and let's see what happens <laughs> that's not how you treat this kind of stuff yeah and also there's there's no harm in sending children for the measurables we need to as practitioners get to a point where we stop saying things like it looks better oh i think it looks like it's getting better what you see and what you're looking at is not a measurable we're we're medical professionals we're scientists we need to measure things so everything that I do, and I say to the parents as well, it's not my opinion, it's not what I think. These are measurables that are done through uh, practical me measurables and then through the scan that I do. I'm looking at numbers and the numbers qualify patients as candidates or not as candidates and qualify and quantify the severity. We need to be quantifying severity, not well, it looks a little bit better today because the child has some soft tissue you know, that's that's come about in the last two months as they've gained weight. So they've grown a little bit of hair, so you can't see it as much. That's not a measurable. Yeah, no, that makes perfect, perfect sense. I remember um, while while doing my my further studies in the UK, and I see Jeanette, one of my one of my fellow students has just jumped on as well. How are you doing? Um, what, what our prof used to tell us there was, look, at least if you can't fix it, at least measure it. Yes. You know, at least give it a number. And, and however you do that, then at least you've done your job to be able to go, there's a number on it. And then at least we can take a number again in five months' time and go, you know what? 
this is what's happened or that's what's happened. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. Um, I do have I do have a question uh, that Chantal and I'm guessing this is Chantal from Cape Town. It's wonderful to see you on the stream uh, that, that she's asked. And please, guys, you are welcome to ask questions. I will, I've got the chat up on the, on my sidebar here. So anytime. Oh, I see Sharon Hamlet is here as well. Hello. Oh, I see my, my patients are arriving. <laughs> wonderful. Um, so, so Chantal has asked, what is the cost of a scan? Very <laughs> Our practice is a medical aid preferred provider, which means that we charge the tariff rate per each medical aid. So if Jim says they're going to give us this much and they give us that much, and that's what we claim. We're all parents at our practice. Um, we do try our best to do what we can through medical aid. The average cost is around 800 to 900 rand for the diagnostic scan and the report that goes with that. Okay, so that's nice and clear cut. And then at least you can be able to tell parents, look, this is what we're sending you for. Medical aid sorted out. It is going to be X amount and we can, and we can carry look, on. Um, yeah, I mean, so sometimes I say that, and especially the professionals I work with, they say, wow, <laughs> you're the only mm. one in Africa and that's what you charge. And, and I think we mm. just, you know, as much as we're all trying to keep food on the table, my, my first objective going into this was to help children. Um, and, and the history behind that is I am a, a mom that had a 10-week prem baby and he developed a skull deformity in ICU. And I couldn't find a single person in this country um, to help me. <laughs> and I had to teach myself how to make his helmet. And that's sort of how I developed the skill is, is through necessity. And um, after doing this for a few children by hand, I decided there's got to be a better way, a more scientific way than me hand measuring. And the company that I did my qualification through has been running this FDA-approved program for 45 years. So my primary goal is to make sure that this is as accessible, having worked in government for so many years, um, that this is accessible to as many people as possible. So we, we try to limit the cost and uh, and help parents with payment plans and that sort of thing. Mm. I'm, I'm trying to make it accessible as Absolutely. I can. And and um, and and I do have to say uh, one thing is that is that I always get a copy from you, which is wonderful. Yes. And then and then I get to you know I also have that to be able to work with, and it becomes part of my noting as well, which which is yeah. wonderful. Um, Jeanette has asked, what is what is the scan called? What is it? What, what, um, what's the what's the name of the scan that you do? I know it was a it's light. A, yes, it's a light scan. It's a four D light scan. So. Um, you can see behind me, I don't know if you guys can see behind me, there's a little head mm. with a sock on, that guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, the, <laughs> I'm not going to reveal too many secrets, but um, <laughs> years and years ago, and uh, my own son and a the first few kids, we used to cast them with plaster of Paris, and, and uh, <laughs> it was quite a wow. process. So, wow. the 4D light scan that we have here, um, each little circle on that little sock behind me has a different color block, a different um, calibration. I don't know if you guys remember watching TV as kids and those color blocks used to come up on your screen to calibrate the color of your TVs. Yeah, um, okay. So that's what the technology is based off of. And a very bright white light shines on, on each of these little circles and it picks up this data and translates it into a 3D image for us. It takes two to four minutes, depending on how wriggly the child is. Okay, um, yeah, is it at any point? Yeah, I mean, often I have kids stop to breastfeed or, or kids who mm. drop their dummies or it's no in, not invasive at all. It's a little silk sock that goes on their head. It really, the technology has come such a long way. It, it, you know, it's so good for us as referring practitioners to know that kind of stuff yeah. because then we can also go, you know what, Dory, it's not an invasive thing. There's it, no radiation. Know, exactly. Yeah. They may have just gone for like a CT or something and they may have gone like, oh, you know, I can't put them through another procedure. We go like yeah. two to four minutes. It's a silk sock. Don't worry about it. It's, it's, it's going to yeah. be fine. It's super minimally. It's super Okay, the questions are coming in thick and fast here. So, ah, uh, oh, my good friend Margaret Preston, lovely, all the way from Mauritius. Good. Okay, she says, great presentation, thanks. Uh, she practices in Mauritius, lucky girl, uh, which is often challenging, though, with regards to the availability of practitioners for multidisciplinary management. Do you have any suggestions for assessments or assistance uh, remotely? Are we talking about um, for cranial deformities or for mm. torticosis? Um, I suppose either way, either way, uh, but let's, you, let's talk about cranial you, stuff first. Are you a physio or a, an OT? Um, I'll go to Cairo. Cairo, okay, cool. So in terms of measuring skull deformities, um, I use a basic caliper. So I use a, a spring-loaded caliper. It's got a little spring-loaded mechanism. 
um, if anybody wants my scales or my measuring charts, it's a simple measurement. We do a, a length to width measurement just above the eyebrows and then just above the ears, we do a width measurement. Um, I'll send you guys those calculations. So when we do those measurements, we want to quantify the severity. For plagiocephaly babies, we do a diagonal measurement. It's called your, your cranial vault asymmetry index. Same caliper you can use. Um, you are right, Margot. You actually bring up a very good point that a lot of practitioners, not just government practitioners, not just practitioners that work in remote areas, a lot of practitioners are very much working on their own. And I think in the modern day of practicing, we sort of have to be a bit of everything. We have to know a lot about everything, you know, from um, what your physio colleagues are doing to your pediatrician colleagues. Parents really look to us for large amounts of advice. <laughs> and we're oftentimes crossing over in our, in our practices. But as long as you're measuring and you can have a base scale to measure towards. So what I'll do, um, if you, um, I'm sure Mike will give my details out or I'm happy to give it to Mike, is I'll give everybody um, the scales of measuring and uh, maybe we can do a quick video on the pediatric network, uh, you and I, just how we do measuring. Um, in terms of taught, <laughs> that's Mike's area. <laughs> I do screen for taught. Um, I do screen for craniosynostosis, but uh, taught is your area, Mike. <laughs> um, yeah, you wanna, yeah. So, you want to yeah, speak so to that? Yeah, so when it comes to torticollis, I mean, there's there, there's a certain amount that we can that we can uh, actually there's there's a huge amount that is on home exercise program uh, that that can be done sort of remotely and and even if you can't get to the baby, you know, um, there, there's there's quite a bit. In fact, most of the high level evidence actually points itself to being able to do. Uh, home exercise with them. The problem yeah. that I find, and I mean, we've just been in a situation of doing a lot of telehealth online stuff and not being able to take measurements and that kind of thing. Um, I find it horrendously difficult to try and do it through there because I remember, and even with us, um, I had one child that I kind of thought, eh, I kind of looked at them on the on, on, on the video and I was like, eh, it looks a little, and then Yvonne said to me, this is like one of the worst I've ever seen. It is, yeah. You know, when they came. So, yeah, so we have to be a little careful uh, on, on that stuff. But yeah, I mean, working uh, working remotely and doing and giving assistance remotely, I, uh, as long as you rule out your red flags, if we're talking about something like torticollis, as long as you're ruling out our red flags, uh, obviously with Plato, with craniosynostosis, there are one or two questions you could maybe ask to ask if there's a certain head shape, you know, on the flattened backside, is the ear closer to it or further away? There are certain questions that you could ask. Yes. Um, but uh, you know, it's 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 limited. It is a little limited. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the yeah. is a palpable ridge. Um, you know, and to assess a palpable ridge at a distance is is almost impossible. You know, so um, the team that that I work with, um, we have just recently drawn up a list of um, questions, birth history, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, um, that um, I'll chat to my team and find out if they're willing to make that sort of information available. So these are the things that are going to flag you to, you're either going to develop a skull deformity or you've got associated conditions such as tort, et cetera, et cetera, chronic, those sorts of things. So I'll chat to my team and see if, if they're happy to share that with everyone. That would be amazing. Okay, we do have a question that's coming from Car Caroline from, from Lincoln. Uh, in government hospitals, what department would one refer a baby to with craniosynostosis? Would you refer to plastics or peds or neuro? Because these babies don't get seen very easily. Yes, yeah, it is a difficult one. So um, a lot of the private craniofacial surgeons that I work with, because there's so few of them, actually work in government hospitals as well. One of our leading guys works at Barragwanath. Uh, Caroline, I think you're in KZN as far as I know. So the problem with, with that uh, list that you just gave is it becomes a bounce around. And um, I remember when I worked in government, every time you get a patient, they have to have a little form and that form allows them to come and see you. And it's such a a red tape administrative issue. Yeah, you're in case it is. There is a surgeon, um, I'll get his details for you and ask him if, if he doesn't mind me passing it on to you. So in in our network, because we built up this, this network in Gauteng of practitioners that work in both government and private facilities, so we've got the same guys uh, doing the same thing. I just send them straight to the craniofacial surgeon. So pediatricians are not... Um, 
pediatricians no. are not trained. Oh, no. Oh, you're talking about your MRIs and your CTs and that, and they're down. Um, yeah, pediatricians are not trained to screen for craniosynostosis. They're also not trained to screen for positional deformities. We just need to be uh, quite clear. I mean, a lot of pediatrics is medicine. Um, so although they know years and years of looking at skulls, okay, this doesn't look like a normal skull, I need to send it on. I would almost sort of streamline the process and go, I need you to go to a craniofacial surgeon. So not just a reconstructive plastic surgeon, a, a specifically a craniofacial surgeon. I'm not sure about your government department. I worked at Wentworth, um, and at Wentworth, we had to go to the pediatrician first and then to the craniofacial surgeon. But uh, maybe maybe we can hook you guys up and make friends with the craniofacial surgeon mm. and just get your streamline in there. Um, it's all about so who you know. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so Yvanka, I've got I've got a question here from Alexandra. Uh, greetings from Brooklyn, New York City. I hope everything is going well there, Alexandra. Uh, okay, so craniofacial surgeons here in the US balk at helmets, uh, only ruling out craniosynostosis. They don't even take any, any measurements. And she says, uh, I take CVAI uh, okay. and she's a pediatric PT. Uh, so pediatricians also don't recommend helmets because of an older study in the UK a while back claiming no benefits. Do you have any current data linking not treating with helmets and developmental delay? Do I have any current data linking developmental delays? Yeah, and not so, 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 so linking not treating with a helmet and developmental delay. I do. So um, our company conducted a... Um, a research trial over 18 years. They did 263 children in the UK who had positional skull deformities. They compared those, um, I can make all of these available to everyone, but we'll just discuss it while we're on the, the panel and on the question. Um, they compared these to their brother or sister who didn't have a skull deformity and also their classmates. Of the 263 children, 64% of those um, had to go for co-therapy, so speech therapy, um, occupational therapy, physiotherapy, and it's that whole principle we were talking about, about the compression on the brain. I bet you if you Google right now, does plagiocephaly lead to developmental delays, you will find quite a few of the studies. Um, I was going through them this afternoon again, just to make sure that when we had this conversation, and I get it again and again and again, and part of why I started incorporating the multidisciplinary team is I was getting these great heads, the heads look great, that's fantastic, I've done my job, but almost 80% of these children were either developmentally delayed before they came to me. I got the head going, but now we're still two, three months behind because they haven't learned how to sit properly. They aren't doing four-point loading. They aren't doing extension in, in tummy time. So um, just from our own case studies of over 140 ch children that we've treated, and we're busy gathering data in our team so that we can have this argument on a personal basis and not just, well, I read this study or I saw this trial or my company did this study 20 years ago. We are busy gathering data on our own patients. So um, I'm happy to make those those um, trials and journals available to everyone. And And I need to be very clear that when I speak, I'm speaking on evidence-based approaches. So there are a few things we, we won't talk about or we'll talk about if we get a question on it, but everything we're speaking about is based on evidence-based. And like I said, oftentimes pediatricians will say the same thing to me, but uh, it's not a big deal. It's fine. But we need to think about the physiology behind it and how the brain functions. And we need to think about such a simple concept, such as if you've got compression on a child's finger for nine months, growing in utero, what's going to happen to the tip of that finger? It's not going to develop properly. We're not going to have vascular structure develop properly. We're not going to have anything develop properly in the tip of this finger. So if we can accept something as simple as that, when we're looking at a structure such as the brain, we need certain structures to be in certain volumes, certain shapes, certain sizes to work optimally. It's the same principle. It has to be the right structure to work correctly. Yeah, so yes, I'm, I'll make that available. Okay. Yeah, you can't see it, so it becomes a second-class citizen. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, absolutely. That making it available, um, uh, and we'll we'll pop it up on on Pediatric Network, and then we'll yeah. I'm sure we'll do a whole folder with it, and then you know, uh, watching this, and then you can access those as well, and then you can get a nice a nice rounded picture. Cool. Thanks, Alexandra. It's nice to know that there are there are practitioners in the pediatric space watching us from all over the world. You you literally made my evening. That's that's wonderful, and uh, your morning, I'm sure, because. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
that's how it's going. Okay, so I do want to just ask you because now we're going to refer on, maybe uh, we as practitioners are, are, are speaking to a mum and the mum says, okay, that's fine. So potentially we're looking at a helmet here, we're looking at some sort of orthosis. And uh, what's that going to do? How does it help? Yeah, how does it work? Yeah. yeah. So um, briefly, as we discussed, once they come in, I conduct a whole, a whole bunch of hand measurements. I don't have to do that, but it's my my habit and my nature, um, the scan will do everything for me. But it's my personality and years of doing it by hand um, that I still conduct hand measurements. Um, a 4D light scan that comes up on the computer. From that image that we get, I translate that into another program and um, I create the head that I think I can get based on the head that I'm presented with. The FDA give me 30 millimeters for children under a year old to work in. So if a child, for example, has 17 millimeters of asymmetry, I'm probably going to use 20 to 22 millimeters of that 30 that they give me in circumference um, to, to make that asymmetric change. It depends on, on, on each child. So how the orthotic works is we guide growth. It's not restrictive. It's not pushing. It's not constrictive. As the child grows, I calculate their rate of growth based on their adjusted age, because a lot of these kids are prim, um, and we calculate how much are they going to grow in the three months that they're probably going to be in the helmet. And then I gently guide the growth. So for children with uh, plagio carefully over the bust or protruding or prominent areas, we have light contact. Um, it can be likened to having the, the ring of a sock on their little leg, and as they grow, we just gently hold that position and and guide the growth in the correct way. I see the children bi-weekly for adjustments. So there's foam inside the helmet every two weeks based on their rates of growth. I will remove foam and, foam and continue to guide the growth. And when I say, I mean, this is very precise. I'm working within millimeters. If the child grows two millimeters, I'll take two millimeters. So it's very monitored and precise. Um, I am a medical orthotist and prosthetist. Part of my job is, and my training is to make prosthetics. And I've actually gotten to a point where I've stopped making prosthetics because it's so important to be very focused on this one area. And I don't have time. <laughs> so, yeah, mastering one. I think you bring up two very important points that as a, as a, as a practitioner, it's, it makes me very happy. One is it's not the situation of I'm sending you to the baker so you will get bread. Yes. Uh, you know, it's not I'm sending you and she will, all she's going to do is put you in a helmet. It's not that. It's to right. see are you a candidate. You're do right, yeah. you fulfill the, the requirements to be able to helmet? If not, we'll mm -hmm. make another plan. That's number one for me. And the <laughs> second one is um, that it's not just going, well, we'll slap it on and we'll see how we go. There, right. There's a prognosis that you can almost work out from the beginning going. I know what I'm going to get. Yeah. Exactly. This is what I'll be able to give you. And I, and I think just for me working in private practice, that's one of the most important things that I've had to be able to develop is to be able to go, this is what I can give you. So that when we come to the end of the road with each other, we are both satisfied because I was able to say, this was the outcome. I didn't tell you I was going to sell you five bags of gold. Uh, uh, this is what we can do because you've arrived at this time or that time. Yes. Yeah. Those two and things were super important. And even, you know, having conversations like this, and oftentimes practitioners and other other um, medical professionals and parents even say to me, well, why aren't you marketing? And I keep saying, well, I'm not, I'm not selling a product. I'm not a salesman. I'm a medical professional. And this is very personal to me. This is every baby is my baby, you know, and I remember being that mom. It's very personal to me to make this as efficient as possible. And my goal is actually to screen, intervene, and prevent. I cannot sing the praises enough of the physiotherapists and the chiros that I work with. If we get a child at six weeks that needs intervention, so a lot of these skull deformities are, taught, uh, are caused by torticollis, um, it's caused by children with colic, and they do that uh, Schindler's reflex where they extend mm -hmm. the right, and they do it again and again and again, and they develop this rotational deformity because of all that pressure on, on the one side of the skull. It's so important that these children are referred out. I, I can tell you that every child I've sent for early intervention that haven't moved into the moderate to severe range have corrected. So if you get a child under three months who can have six to eight weeks of physio or chiro and they have a mild deformity or mild compression on the occipital, if they go to a 
great chiro and a great physio that's trained and work in conjunction, we all get our hands on the same thing. The majority of these children are getting that two, three moles, that four, five percent that they need to not be a candidate anymore. And you're right, as you said, this is an FDA approved program. It's not me putting helmets on kids because I, I like putting helmets on kids. It's, it's hard work. <laughs> when a helmet goes on, it's hard work. They become part yeah. of your family. So, um, I mean, these moms are phoning me at 2 a.m. And, and we're very much integrated because this is such a, a monitored process. My goal is to make sure that nobody needs to be in a helmet. And that's why we're doing these educational talks. That's why we're trying to expose more and more people to this is very real. This is 49% of children have skull deformities. That's almost one in two children will have a skull deformity. What we need to do is quantify the severity. Is it mild? Is it moderate? Is it severe? And the type of intervention that we do is going to be based on that severity qualification. We have to quantify the severity. We can't look at it and go, it looks kind of flat. Let's see what happens. We yeah. have to quantify it so that we can make an informed decision and like you said, develop a prognosis so that we can treat better. Yeah, it's the the days of eyeballing are, are, are gone. We have we, we have the technology. We need to be able to. We do. We're blessed. We're lucky, and we're blessed oh. to have this technology. Oh. Yeah. Okay, we got we got two questions going on. I know that you said four to eighteen months is where you helmets. Uh, I have Chantel asking, what age are helmets no longer effective? Uh, is, um, is that the same answer, or is there a bit of a? Yeah. So the rate of growth um, is extremely fast in the first two to three years of life. After the first year, it declines by double, so it decreases by double. So mm -hmm. obviously, the quicker they grow, the easier it is for me to get changes. The quickest I've ever gotten um, a child out of a helmet is four weeks. The longest was a child who was 16 months old. He had severe brachycephaly. He took five months. So the child that was four weeks was five months old when I met him. So it's not that they're no longer effective. It's almost... Um, you know, it's the same principle as, as scoliosis. So um, when you treat a child in the right phase for scoliosis, well, they're growing and having rapid growth spurts. And that's a lot of how it works is um, a lot of parents say, well, can they sleep out of the helmet? I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> sleep time is the best time. That's when we're secreting growth hormone. And that's when we're getting those primary growth changes. So um, the FDA only allow me to helmet at 18. The last, last date is 18 months. The only exception that I got to that um, was a hydrocephalus baby, and I had to do a lot of special applications because he had 30 millimeters of asymmetry and it was causing 15% partial deafness in the rotated ear. And the surgeon and everybody got involved, and I was allowed to put him in an orthosis to correct that ear canal so that we could get some hearing back in that ear. Um, we managed to get him down to 5% of hearing loss. So, but he was in that helmet for, for five months to get um, 10 millimeters of change. And I can do that in six weeks in a child that's four to six months old. So the FDA will only allow me to helmet up to 18 months. I get better results in children who are four to eight months. So anyway, up to 18 months, it's just a longer process. Fantastic answer, thank you. Uh, I'm gonna shoot back quickly to Alexandra who's uh, just, just kind of added a little bit onto the developmental delay. Uh, she says it's also a chicken and an egg uh, scenario because babies who have some developmental delay might be spending more time on their back. Uh, anyhow, <laughs> yeah, yeah, during the first months of life and they're resistant to moving, they lack motivational drive to move, etc. Right. And therefore they are more likely to have plagia brachycephaly rather than the other way around. You know what I might do as well? I might link, um, I did a paper for uh, a chiropractic pediatric journal where I looked at exactly that. Uh, where it's where a lot of the time it is actually um, the fact that there is a motor delay that is then causative um, to the plagiarism. So I'll pop that up in the notes as well. But but uh, I mean that's the kind of thinking we're looking at, Alexander. So that's, that's why we need to be taking a comprehensive birth history and a comprehensive early life history. I mean, hopefully you're seeing these children earlier rather than later. So you are right; it does go both ways. So we have children who have developmental delays. I'm talking about our spina bifida, cerebral palsy, children mm -hmm. who just don't want to get up, <laughs> who have, um, I hate this word, low tone, um, who don't want to get moving. We have children with torticollis who favor one side and never cross over the midline, so they roll later. Um, and when we're talking about delays, even the children that are very forcibly on this, um, so it's, 
you know, back to sleep campaign, the back sleeping and our back sleeping for every single nap, every, you know, every sleep they're taking is on the back. We're noticing a four to six week delay in those children. And then they develop skull deformities because they've been lying on their back so long. In the same way, um, and it goes the other way, is we have these children who have skull deformities in utero that have developmental delays. And that's for um, uh, multiple reasons. The one is that when you've got a flattening, so let's talk about a plagio baby, on the occipital parietal region, it's very hard for these children to rotate with limited neck control in the first two, three months of life to rotate off this flat spot. So it's almost like the concept of having a flat spot on a wheel. You're always going to hit that flat spot again and again. So you are right. The research and every single time I see a baby, it's not just logging, oh, you've got a flat head or you've got this problem. We log all of the comorbidities, all of the co-issues and everything from latching issues to birth history to um, everything. And there are studies that go both ways. They had the plagiar or they had the skull deformity first and now they have developmental delays. And those are the studies that talk about the brain volume issues and that there's not enough um, feedback back and through and that those pathways are damaged or those pathways are altered because the brain isn't the correct shape to get the message through. So it's that. And if, if you work with cerebral palsy kids, that concept should be pretty easy to understand that when there's a CP kid, the pathway needs to go in a different pattern. So it's the same thing if the, the shape is incorrect. Um, it's the same way you can think about someone that has an injury on their leg, how their vascular structure has to now reroute itself to still get blood supply to their leg. It's a compensatory mechanism. So you are right, it does go both ways. You just need to be clear when you're working with your patients, which one are you dealing with? Absolutely, makes a lot of sense. So I have another question here. Well, we are going all over the globe now. <laughs> this, is from my, this is from my work wife, uh, all the way in the Netherlands from, uh, from Amsterdam, Dr. Marty Cook. It's nice to see you on board, Marty. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us. Now, Marty asked a question that I've thought about a lot of the time, and I have my own feelings, and I'd really like to ask you, though, are there any risks to the cervical spine uh, helmeting a child? Are there risks to the cervical spine? Yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> the helmet is, um, I don't know what uh, metric system you're working in, but the helmets are 150 to 200 grams. They get lighter as we go. Um there is, however, a risk to the cervical spine by leaving an asymmetry in the base of skull. So if we have a child that has asymmetry on the occipital, what we're seeing in those children is that the insertion of the atlas is rotated at an angle. And um, there are quite a lot of papers on this molded baby syndrome. And the whole principle is that once you've got that insertion, and it makes sense biomechanically, it makes sense uh, scientifically and physically, that insertion of that atlas is at a rotated angle, you're going to have this rotation all the way down the spine into the pelvis. We're going to have functional LLDs. Um, we have children that rotate off to the side and function like that. And this is such an important thing that we need to be looking at, at children. And oftentimes, I'm sending kids to chiros for base of skull work. So yes, I can fix the asymmetry on the skull, but I can't move that C-spine. That's mm. not part of my job. And a lot of times we do it in conjunction. We're all working together to get that rotation out of the C-spine, out of the thoracic, and hopefully stop it before we get all the way down to the pelvis. And the problem that we're having in these children is once they're learning, so let's say you've got a plagiocephaly on the right side, you turn off to your right and you tilt, and you're learning to function off on your right side. What these children end up doing is developing muscle imbalances because they're so happy and comfortable to look off to their right all the time that they completely miss the side of their body. So they're very right dominant, even when we see them crawling and pushing up, so they push up with one hand and neglect their whole left side. So the weight of the orthosis is so minimal. Um, and uh, yeah, oftentimes parents ask me that, how is it going to affect crawling? How is it going to affect sitting, et cetera, et cetera. If it, as long as everything's in alignment, we should have good functioning bodies. So I mean, I that it, it's definitely something. Before I started seeing a lot of a lot of kids from you coming in with helmets, which are some of them that you have got at the moment are beautiful, I must say. Especially some of the new ones with all the rainbows and everything. It looks amazing. But I, I had no idea how light how light they actually were before I'd actually held one in my hand, and it's it's pretty negligible. Um, although I do, you know, with 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 the orthosis, you are creating change. 
Uh, and yes. you know, as you say, with change, there's going to be change of basic skills. So for us to be able to work with that at the same time and be able to guide that with whatever is happening with the helmet, and that's kind of the conclusion that I've come to is that yes, it will be changing up the C-spine mechanics, um, but for, to be able to guide those C-spine mechanics. Up to symmetrically adjust it. Yes, yeah. Or in the case of the brachy babies is to get that occiput out so that we can have proper seating in that area. So um, in terms of where the orthosis stops and where my purchase area stops is just at the base of skull, just on that little where your, your neck and your, your skull join. It's almost like having a thumb just under the occipital. So sort of half of the atlas and the rest is free. Um, you know, but I'm not touching, I promise you I'm not touching your vertebrae. <laughs> so it's for you guys. <laughs> I'm with you, I'm with you. Now, I have, a, I have a, 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 an important question here. I'm a practitioner. I have a child that comes in. I'm going, I don't know, do I refer uh, or for, for a 40 light scan, don't I? What's, what's my metric? What am I looking at to go, this is a child that needs to be referred? Yeah, so it's, it's really important to conduct a comprehensive birth history, um, a early life history. I know that some of them are only two, three months old. Some of them you're seeing at six weeks already. Um, so what we like to do is, is have children that we flag as high risk. And those children include um, children that are from multiple births, um, like twins, for example. The reason is that interuterine pressure more often than not, one twin, if not both twins, will have some sort of cranial deformity. So if you see a twin and the head looks a little bit different, you, you know, and, and you're not comfortable doing those measurements, you want to preemptively rule it out that, you know, these kids were restricted and constricted in utero. Um, we're talking about children that had breech birth positions. I've seen children that were up in their mom's ribs or down against the pelvis and they have indentation on the skull or rotation in their face. Um, so anyone that had interuterine position restrictions, children that had assisted births. So these are people you flag as high risk and you make a point of looking at the skull. You make a point of measuring it. Even if they're there for colic or they're there for late crawling, have a look at the skull. And if you can measure it, we'll provide um, those measurements for everyone so that they know how to do it. Um, the forceps and vacuum-assisted children, they get a lot of those conical skulls. Very often I'm asked by gynecologists or pediatricians to come and scan the head two to three days after birth, and in three months we rescan. And the reason is, is that the accepted norm is if the skull hasn't corrected in three months, it's not going to correct and we need to intervene because we're running out of time because the sutures are closing. So oftentimes with those vacuum-assisted babies, I go scan. It's like a blood test. I go scan, I take a baseline. In three months, we scan again and we go, hey, you're actually okay or good job for going to physio in Cairo. And we can actually overlap the two scans and see where the changes have occurred. Um, for our scapho babies, we're looking at premature births. We're looking at prolonged births, so babies that sat in the birth canal um, and that little head became super conical. Caesars, I'm seeing it a lot in Caesar babies that were in the birth canal, didn't go all the way through, got pulled back out, and now these super conical flat occiputs. Um, as Alexandra was saying, children with developmental delay, spina bifida, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome children. So this is something that uh, I get a bit of backlash for. Um, mm -hmm. if, why are we putting a helmet on a Down syndrome child? And oftentimes, mm -hmm. brachycephaly is associated with Down syndrome. It's a feature, the, the broad, wide skull, the flat skull, the long, broad forehead. And I've had quite a few Down syndrome uh, patients, and their whole point of it, yes, we're going to improve the, the cosmesis, but the whole point of it is to allow that brain to grow optimally in the back of the skull. So even if they have developmental delays, we don't have to leave a compressed occiput. We don't have to leave a flat skull as a flat skull. Um, as we said earlier, um, Mike also just did a, a GERD talk. Um, I don't know if you guys have had a chance to see that, but for those of you working with these kids, we're looking at these reflux and these colicky kids they do that Schindler's reflex. And very often I get kids and they go, well, the peds sort of was taught. So we went for physio and the physio says it's not taught, but the baby still has a, a preference or a side. And then I say, well, do you have colic or reflux? And they go, well, yes. So it's that, that Schindler's. And Schindler's is only diagnosed in 10% of patients. Um, I don't know if we're missing it or what's happening while the kids are sleeping, but it's quite a, a prominent sign of colic or reflux. 
I watched the talk, I'm not the expert mm. on that. Yeah, we, talk, yeah, we talk about it in the Torticollis one, the new one that we've just launched on Pediatric yeah. Network now, because we talk about the difference between paroxysmal and non-paroxysmal types. Uh, and it falls squarely into a paroxysmal type of torticollis because it's it's there, and then when the need for it is gone, so the need for the closure of the lower esophageal sphincter goes, then it then it drops away again. But that's you can find all of that all of that info on on, on those courses. One thing that we talked about that I really really want to pick up on because I found it today. I found it in my office today, working with a child that my normal child is one that uh, can't fart and can't burp and you know these <laughs> these wonderful guys. Yeah. Set the little guy down on my lap, and I looked at a massive plagiocephaly. And you start to think, okay, so these two things that go through my mind. The one is a practitioner. I don't want to worry this mom unduly, and I, and I have to approach this slowly because she has not seen this. And it's yeah. the weirdest thing because parents tend not to look at the tops of their children. They tend to look at them square on because that's where all the fun stuff is. They don't look from the top down. And the moment you look from the top down, and then you turn baby around and you put baby up to their face and go, look at this. I mean, she was in tears because now she's missed this huge thing that really, if she'd not had it explained to her in the beginning, how is it her fault? But I think the only reason I bring that story up is that you have to look for it because don't expect it to be something that is just explained to you in your office because it's not. And, and yeah. a lot of the time you'll pick up crazy looking heads and you'll kind of go, do they know about this? I'm going to have to sort of slowly, slowly go like, you really need to, you know, you really need to have a look at this. And then that becomes the reason for the, for the, for the continued treatment yeah. and being able to pass them over to you. You, know. you also need to remember that these parents are, the child that you see, you're seeing for the first time, they see these kids every single day. They were born like that. They looked like that, sure. you know, and if, if you're getting a millimeter of deformity occurring, let's say every week, you get a deformity, deformity uh, growing and, and getting worse and getting worse. It's so gradual that they're not going to see it. And I've often had parents say, everything was fine. And then at four or five months, I noticed the head looked funny. And I go, well, that's that, you know, that slow progression of change. Whereas the, the in utero ones go, wow, okay, no, it doesn't look right yeah. from birth. So you are right. They, they aren't looking at it and they aren't looking for it. And just talking about taught, um, taught, has an 85% link to plagiocephaly, and it's threefold. So the one is that um, these children obviously have a favoured position off to their taut side, so they're going to be off onto that side even while they're sleeping. Um, the other is that the sternomastoclastoid muscle attaches to part of the occipital bone. If you've got this tight pulling on this occipital bone that's open, it's going to pull the occipital bone out of position. So the common presentation was taught, and we spoke about this um, in, in my own group of therapists that I work with, is the literature says taut is a flattening or a rotation. So if you're lying on this part, the ear is going to be rotated forward. And oftentimes I'm seeing taut kids with the ear where the flattening is, is pulled back. And that's because mm -hmm. of that occipital rotation that's occurring from that taut pulling down on it. Um, so, yeah, so... It, the other thing is sometimes we have a, a plagiocephaly and a tort develops on top of that because of that flat spot they can't rotate off of. They're lying on the side and the small muscle's trying to grow and it's getting tighter and shorter. So, um, yeah, in your in your tort um, course, you, you sum that up really well and you, you build it all in together. So if you guys haven't had a chance to have a look at that. <laughs> Yvanka, I think we've got two minutes left uh, because we've okay. an hour has gone so fast. I have two questions. I'm going to run them really quick. Hopefully we get one per minute. Alexander says, any studies done about bone density? Some kids seem to have such hard heads. I have two of those. Uh, mm -hmm. And they can lie on their back at all times, no change in skull shape. And some babies seem to have a soft skull. So are there any studies about bone density different in, in different kids? So I think that's very much just to do with the months or when the sutures fuse. So some children, you'll see when you, when you read about sutures or fontanelles closing, some are three months to nine months. So if you've had a suture closed from three months, that compressive force is going to be a bit different when you've got closure on the front of the skull than a child who's still open up to nine months and allowing all of that rotation to occur. So I think that's where that principle comes in. Some children are born with things almost closed or slightly closed. And if you've got a six month gap in between when it's going to close and it does close, you're more susceptible to change than those who don't. Yeah. 
And then literally in 30 seconds, I hope we have more time, but in 30 seconds, I think, uh, Margot saying for mild cases, what's your opinion of the donut shape they do, uh, Pillar? Give me a call, help yeah. So um, I tried to partner with them and the medical aids response, we tried to get it on the medical aid prices. Their response mm -hmm. simply was, there are no medical trials or journals that are done other than by the company. So um, for them, it has to be an external trial or an external practitioner or doctor that's doing these trials. It can't be done by the company that's endorsing the product. So um, again, you need to find the cause, you need to address the cause, and you need to intervene. Okay, cool. I've just been told now that we actually do have um, we we have a little bit longer than an hour, which is which is okay. wonderful. Thank you. Um, okay, so yes, yeah, so so I think um, yeah, because those donut pillows, one of the issues with those donut pillows is expense. They are wildly expensive by the brand names. Yeah. Um, and I get cornered with that quite a bit with people going, well, would you do that? And my general thing is, well, put them in a, instead of that time, you, I know it's for sleeping, but I'm saying kind of like get time back by during the day instead of having them on their back, have them in a carrier or something where you have no yeah, pressure yeah. on the back of the head. So try to get around it because they are horribly expensive. Yes, and I've had so many children and the parents say, we bought the pillow and nothing happened. So I can't, I don't have any studies on it. I can't give an opinion on it, but it's not conclusive enough for me to endorse it. So I, I wish I could. I wish I could just give everybody a pillow when they come out of the hospital and go, don't worry, you'll never get a skull deformity. He has a pillow. I really yeah. wish I could do that. And that's why we tried to partner with him. But that is the best advice that you could give us as practitioners so that we can be able to pass that on and go, look, jury's out. Yes, and it really, it, guys, it really is okay to say things like, I don't know enough about this to have an opinion on it, but I'm a medical practitioner. I will take the responsibility on myself to either learn about it or refer you to someone that can help you with this. It really is okay to do that. I know oh, we, yeah. we're superheroes to our patients, but we're also just people, um, you know, doing our best. We've got one in from Caroline. My kids had a brachy uh, and lying in a soft feather pillow really helped. Yeah, soft, the soft pressure on the back. I mean, I remember yeah. reading, which which really which really solidified this whole thing for me about why it works. Is that skull vault bones grow out of uh, membrane, whereas the rest of the bony structures grow out of a cartilage matrix. So yes. these bones at the top are super soft. They're designed, like you were saying, now that's the problem with cranio. They're designed for the brain literally to push them out. So they're that malleable. That if you can just make the surface softer, like like that, right. well done there, without spending a small fortune on a on a donut pillow. No, you're right. Yeah, I also say that to parents: just the softer, the better. Let the skull do what it needs to do. Stop trying to manipulate it. It's impossible to put the right as a parent to put the right forces in the right areas yeah. all the time. Let let it do what it needs to do. And that's a big comment on on things like sleep sacks. Um, you know, we need to be letting children move freely. So that they can move, you know, so that they can reposition themselves and and rotate off that whole head if they need to. Sure. Last thing I want to ask you about, because you've been so generous with your time with us already. The last thing I want to uh, talk about, and I think this is just something that I never really knew until I worked with you, was that once I once I send a patient over and we go right, the patient's going to be helmeted. Is that the end of me, um, or do we continue to work together? Yeah, definitely. So I mean, I. I work with a, a large, you know, multidisciplinary group. Um, so no, not at all. I actually, my job is easier, my job is better, and the children function better when we're working as a team. So especially from a Cairo point of view, um, we're doing a lot of um, taught work, base of skull work. Like I spoke about that molded baby syndrome. There's nothing I can do about rotation in the thoracic. That's all up to you guys. The great thing about physios and chiros is that they monitor and they track and they measure. And, and that really helps me to do my job. A lot of these children have sleeping issues. When the helmet's on and removing skull, a lot of them have tense fascia in the back and they have a lot of muscle um, issues. You need to be releasing that. It's the same principle as trying to jog when you've got a spasm in your quad. It's going to hurt. So when these children have had that compression for so long and they've got these tight little muscles and this tight fascia, um, I, I need manual manipulation to be moving it. It's not in my scope. It's not something I'm going to be doing. So definitely I refer out a lot to chiros and physios. Uh, more and more we're referring out to occupational therapists for these children that have vestibular and sensory issues. Um, 
more and more we're referring out to speech therapists. We're seeing a lot of these children have soft tissue uh, malformation in lip ties and tongue ties, lactation specialists. These children aren't latching if they've got rotation in the jaw. Um, Mike, you do a lot of TMJ work for me as well. Um, we're even looking at ENTs because of those ear canals. It's really, it, this is actually something that has something to do with all of us. And um, yeah, I, I refer a lot. <laughs> so well, I need you guys. But it's so nice to know because because the last thing you want to think is that, okay, I'm, I'm sent off, like, like you say, they become, these children become part of your family, you know. And, and I'd like to think I'm sending off to my extended family, not that I'm sending off to, to, to another group, which is, everything's going to go and change. Yvonne, thank you so much for spending your time with us this evening. I'm, all I'm seeing on the side here is people saying, great talk, great info. Thank you very much. We even have thank Joanne you. Bradley, who is an amazing lady, who's, <laughs> who, who I have uh, made use of uh, a lot as yeah. well. And of course, we've done some podcasts and stuff together, saying thank you for sharing your knowledge. She always learns something new. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, we will put some of that stuff up we were talking about, and uh, I'm sure we'll do more together. Yeah, great. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for your time. Perfect. Thanks, guys. Uh, this Thank will you. all be redone, and we'll send everything off, and you'll see us all again on the Pediatric Network. Bye for now. Bye-bye.